What a day that will be. I hope you're looking forward to that day. Let's turn to John chapter 1. If you're in first through third grade, you can slip out to our children's church at this time. John chapter 1, as we are now looking at our second message, looking at the gospel of John, we're not in a rush. Last week we looked just at verse 1, and I explained to you that the most important thing is that you get Jesus right. You get Jesus right. As you just heard sung, one day Christ will return in the clouds to claim his own, the conquering king, to defeat sin forever. And friends, if we live to see that day, that would be a terrible day to realize that you got Jesus wrong. That the Jesus that comes through the clouds isn't the Jesus that you've been worshiping. And so the goal of our series through the Gospel of John is to make sure that we get Jesus right. It's the most important thing in all of life. And John is helping us with this. We don't have to work hard to do this in the Gospel of John. We don't have to work hard at all. We just have to read and understand what he's saying. And so once again, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. We're going to read down through verse 13. My message will go down through verse 11. But really the end of verse 13 carries on the idea and we'll finish that up uh, next week. Let's begin reading in verse 1. I'd like you to look at your text with me. So if you have a Bible, look down at your text. If not, just listen carefully as we read the inspired word of God. See what God has for us this morning. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There's a man sent from uh, from God whose name was John, John the Baptist, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word this morning, would you open our eyes to see the truth? For those here who are your children, would you Encourage us this morning with the words of Scripture, if there are any here who are not a Christian, would you change their heart of stone into a heart of flesh? Would you give them faith that they may place their faith and trust in you and you alone? Would you give us grace to see the Son of God on display through the pages of Scripture this morning? In your name we pray, amen. John is on a mission. He's on a mission that will 
really be fulfilled at the end of his gospel explained in chapter 20 that you would know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And as, as he really unearths those two terms, Christ and Son of God, he begins in his prologue. We read for our scripture reading, uh, 1 John chapter 1. And it, if you were here last week, you probably heard some overtones from, from the, the passage, even as we're looking at today in 1 John, because John also wrote 1 John, and he's got a prologue in his letter to 1 John. And he unfolds the correct identity of who Jesus is. And so last week, as we looked at verse 1, those three phrases, we saw that God the Son, Jesus, is eternal, meaning that he has existed from eternity past. He is distinct, meaning that there is a trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and he is also divine. Every thing that it means to be the essence of God in every aspect of what it means to be God is contained in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One essence, three persons. And so God the Son, as John is building his case that Jesus is both Messiah and the Son of God and everything that those two things entail, those two titles entail, He's revealing to us the divinity and the distinction of Jesus, the Word, the Logos. So as we begin in verse 2 this morning and we continue down through verse 11, every good sermon has three points, right? Uh, but uh, I'd like to show you once again three different titles that, that John uses. He uses the title of Creator. He uses the title of Life. And he uses the title of light. And so John is just building his case. He's, he's eternal. He's distinct. He's divine. He's the creator. He's the life. And he's the light. And really, you can't understand the rest of John's gospel without this foundation. Because if you go into John's gospel thinking that Jesus was anything but truly God, you misunderstand what Jesus says. And so the entire gospel is meant to be read with these foundational truths in mind. And so with that brought to the forefront of our mind this morning, let's look at verse 2. We will see the term creator used, meaning that all creation is through the Son. Let's look at verse 2 together. He, talking about the Logos, talking about Jesus, the word here, he was in the beginning with God. And verse 2 really gives us a summary of verse 1. So just in case you missed it, he was in the beginning, meaning that he had no beginning, meaning he's uncreated, and he was with, meaning his, he's distinct and has a relationship with the Father. He was in the beginning with God. And it's very important to have that as the foundation before we go into the concept of creation. Because as we looked at last week, and the, the, the cults of Christianity who would misidentify Jesus, one of the main misidentifiers of who Jesus is, is that a wrong theology would misidentify Jesus as a created being. And here John makes it so clear. He was in the beginning with God, using that as the foundation. We see verse 3, all things were made through him. How much was made 
through Jesus, all things. By the word of the Lord, Psalm 33, verse 6, the heavens were made, and by the breadth of his mouth, all their host. Jesus is the Logos. Remember, we talked about that having allusions to the Old Testament so that the Jews would see every time this phrase, word of the Lord, was used, that Jesus is meant to be inserted into that, saying that he's the fulfillment of that phrase. Psalm 33, 6, the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. This means that when, in Genesis 1, when God speaks, it's the word, it's Jesus, it's the Son speaking. The Son of God, God the Son, is the word of the Lord. It was the son who fashioned Adam from the dust of the ground. It was the son who formed Eve from Adam's rib. It was the son who looked at creation and said, this is very good. Colossians 1, 15 through 17, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Meaning, he is the highest of high. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. Hebrews chapter 1, long ago in many times, many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. It's this pattern over and over and over and over and over again. This is who Jesus is. He was from the beginning, and he's the creator of all. There was not one thing that Jesus did. There was not anything that was created, excuse me, that was not created by him. And so we have introduced to us here in in, in John 1, in verse 3, not only the doctrine of the Trinity, but a doctrine of something that we call inseparable operations. And I know we're going to go a little bit deeper with this, but this is very important. I talked about this a little bit in my message on the Trinity. But the doctrine of inseparable operations reveals to us that there is not one thing that one member of the Trinity does that the others also don't do. In other words, there's not an operation of the Father in which the Son and the Spirit are not also operating in that way. And that's very important because that means that, uh, that in, in the concept of salvation, in the concept of preservation, you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit working together. No one of them has gone rogue on something, right? It's not like God the Father has gone and has chosen one for whom the Son has not atoned for, so therefore you have one of the elect who's not part of salvation. No, they, they all come together in this. That they all work together, and you see this in Genesis 1, and we don't have time to go back and look at this at the beginning of creation, but you have Elohim, and you have the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters, and then you have the phrase, and God said. And so you have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit working together in perfect harmony and unity in every aspect. And so we have the recognition that everything was created through the Son and attributed to God as all three work together. 
Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11 really wraps all this up together when it says, Worthy are you, O our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. There is nothing that exists that was not created by the Son of God. It's also important to note that this creation is a completed act. You can see in verse 3, all things were made through him. That word, that, that, that concept there, were made, is a, is, a, is a concept of completion. In other words, creation is not an ongoing thing. Creation is done. God has created, and now uh, Colossians chapter 1 tells us that he is holding all things together. But there is no ongoing creation here. God's creative work is finished, and thus God rested from his creative acts on the seventh day. Creator. God the Son, creator. The second word we're going to look at is the word life. Life, creator, and life. Eternal life is only found through the Son. Eternal life is only found through the Son. Look at verse 4. In Him, who are we talking about here? We're talking about God the Son. In Him was life. It's a statement of being. Life existed in the Son. All life that exists, exists through the Son, and He is the only source of true life. He is the only source of a fulfilling existence. He is the only source of eternal life. This life that is offered through Jesus is the only true reality. John Piper says it this way, absolute reality is found in true life. Namely, a living person. Without Jesus, you've missed it all, is what he's saying. Life is wrapped up in the person of Jesus. Now, I think there's something a very interesting result that we need to see here, or a conclusion that we could come to, and that is that since life is wrapped up in the sun, and the sun has always existed, life has always existed, mean that li- mean, and that means that life existed before creation. Okay, and this is very important for you to understand. And we're, I'm going to draw it to to kind of a uh, an important application here in a minute. So stay with me. Life is wrapped up in God, in the Son of God. Life is proceeding from the Father, begetting the Son, spirating the Spirit. You have life which has existed from all eternity. And that life existed before matter existed. When I say matter, I mean physical stuff. Okay? Creation. And so therefore, life is not a result of, of, if we talk about this in a scientific sense, life is not a result of matter, but matter is a result of life. And this is one of the many reasons why there's a foundational difference between evolutionary theory and creation. 
Because scientific evolutionary theory is, is a way to try to explain everything that exists without God, right? And the scientific evolutionary theory is that matter existed, and they don't really have an explanation from where that matter came from, other than just from other matter. But matter existed, and through a series of, of scientific events, matter then gives birth to life. Where scripture says, no, 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 it's opposite. It's that life has always existed. That, that in eternity past, God has existed and life is bound up in him. And as a result of, of eternal life, God created. Do you see the difference there? It's so important. And if we don't read our Bible carefully, we may think that evolutionary theory and, and the Bible can coexist, but friends, they can't. You either have one or you have the other. Either verse 4 is true, in him was life in eternity past. And through him, all creation came into existence. Or you have matter existing that somehow sparks life. Without God... Matter results in life. Without God, or with God, excuse me, life then creates matter. In him was life. However, I think if we were to look at exactly what John intends by this word life, we would go much deeper than just some sort of spark that, that all uh, beings have, we would go much deeper than just uh, some sort of greater purpose. You'll hear people say things like, I found my, my purpose for life. I, I was in the deep throes of this, or I was, uh, I was exposed to this, or whatever it is, and as a result of that, I found my life. I found myself. And what they're trying to express by that is some sort of deeper meaning and deeper purpose. And there would be some who would, who would see this, and they would say, in him was life. That means that Jesus gives you purpose, that without God you have no purpose. And, and that, that is a true statement, but I think what John is communicating here actually goes far deeper than that. And the reason that I believe that is because all throughout the book of John you see this concept of life, and it is often tied to another word that you see in your Bibles as translated eternal. Or if you have uh, the King James Version, you'll see often see the phrase everlasting life. And you can write these down. You can turn to them later if you want. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life. Just like the Son has life, so the person who believes on the Son has life. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted to the Son also to have life in himself. That's where we get the word begotten, eternally begotten. John 6, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And just a few verses later in John 6, 48, I am the bread of what? Of life. What does he tell the uh, the lady uh, at the well, the woman at the well, he says, I will give you living water that will spring up inside of you, a well springing up to what? Eternal life. That's in John 4. 
John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and what? The life. See, there's so much more here than just some sort of deeper purpose. John 17, 6, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. John 20, 23, these are written, here's our purpose statement again, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have what? That by believing in him, identified correctly, you may have life. Over and over and over again, we see this concept coming up of life. So what do we mean? Or what, what, do I, what does John mean is really the question we need to ask when he's writing this word life here. And I believe what he's trying to communicate when he says in him was life, and that life was the light of men, as we'll talk about next. He's communicating so much more than just purpose for this world or some sort of spark. He's communicating the very eternal life of God that's existed from eternity past. And he's communicating that that life, that eternal, everlasting, that life that God is emanating out is now infused into you. And that life will come to fruition at your glorification where you will live forever glorified with a new body. But the same life and the reason that you can live forever with God is that God is the source of that life and the same life which he gives to the Son, he gives to you at salvation. And that life will never end. Never end. And so it's that life breathed out by the Father, present in God, given to every person that comes by faith. And you say, what kind of life is this? And there's a word that John uses to kind of give you a facet of what this word life means. And it's the third word we're going to look at this morning, and we'll be here for the remainder of the message. It's the word light. Light. Meaning that all light is through the sun. All genuine true light, as John says here in a minute, all true light is found through the sun. Look at verse 5. The life, the end of verse 4, was the light of men, meaning the light that's present in men. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There's a lot in that phrase. What does John mean by the light shines in the darkness? He means that Jesus' light is shining in the darkness of this world. And by the light, we're talking about the, the identity of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and the power that that message brings into this world. That this is a dark world, and the power of the gospel comes, comes bursting in. Chasing out the darkness. And either you need to see this as 
The light of God, meaning the, the demonstration of Christ on the cross for all to see in God's general call, or you can see this as the light that actually shines into every believer, the light that is present in the hearts of those who, all faith, who have faith. That's what I believe he's talking about here, because we see that in 12 and 13. We see that this light is constantly present in people. And so this light is shining into the hearts. This life is being infused into the hearts and into the lives of God's people. And it's shining in what in verse 5? It's shining in the darkness. The darkness. What does this mean by, what does John mean by darkness? Have you ever experienced absolute darkness? One of the only ways to do that is to uh, get uh, like underground in a cave. I remember we took a, we took a tour of, of a cave one time. It was, it was amazing to go under and see the stalagmites and stalactites, right? And often in those tours, they'll say something like, would you like to experience total darkness? Absolute darkness. And of course, everybody's like, yeah, yeah, that'd be great, right? And then they cut the lights off and it's so dark, you can almost feel it. I mean, you can't see your hand in front of your face. You can't see anything. And it actually starts to kind of drive you a little bit crazy. Because your mind and your eyes are searching for any sort of light anywhere. And if, it, if the lights are cut out for any sort of time, and if you're in a group, people will start to panic. Because it's absolute and total darkness. And that's the concept that John wants to bring to, to your mind here with this word darkness, is an oppressive, enveloping, all-inclusive darkness. But what kind of darkness is this when it comes to the concept of, the, of, of the, the God's light shining in? It's not a physical darkness. It was pictured... When Christ died on the cross and, and the world was in darkness for several hours. But the darkness that John is, is referencing here is not a physical darkness, but a, a darkness, a spiritual darkness. And it's not a darkness, this is very important, it's not a darkness that's just a lack of information. Okay, Maybe you've shown up to a meeting at work that caught you off guard or maybe a meeting that you weren't prepared for, and, uh, and your boss would ask you a question, and you're not up to speed on what's going on at work, and so you may say something like, you know, I can't answer that because in this project I've been left in the dark. I don't have the information that I need in order to give you a proper answer on that, right? Or perhaps this would be you have the information, but you just don't understand it, Right? It's like, as we've mentioned before, going to a, a doctor's appointment and the doctor telling you exactly what's wrong with you and after about 10 minutes, you have no idea what he said and you have the information. You may even know the words and after Googling the words, you may still have no idea what it is. You say, I have the information, but I don't have the comprehension. And so I'm still left in the dark. But that still is not the darkness that's referenced here. The spiritual darkness that John is referencing as really what, it, what he's doing is he's introducing concepts that are going to be 
taught in detail in the rest of the book, the, the darkness that he's referencing is not a darkness from a lack of information, and it's not a darkness from a lack of comprehension. It's a darkness from a blindness. A blindness. It's a blindness of the world without Christ. It's those who would see the truth. They may even understand the truth, but their hearts and their minds are blinded to the truth. And this is the difference between Jesus being Lord and Jesus being your Lord, right? That maybe you open up the Bible and you go to read and, and you say, this doesn't make any sense. I don't, I don't understand. Well, your, your, your problem is not because you don't have the knowledge, although that may be a part of it, and your problem is not that you don't even understand it, although that also may be a part of it. Your real problem is that you are blind. Is that in order for you to come out of the darkness, you have to first be recreated. You must first be able to see. And that's referenced in, in verse 13 about being born. That this darkness is a blindness. But friends, this darkness isn't just a blindness. It's also death. It's inactivity. Ephesians chapter 2 is, makes this very clear. That without Christ, without being saved, it's not as though you're just blind but you're spiritually dead. And that's why, as we looked at at Easter, John gives us this beautiful picture of what it means to be spiritually raised with Lazarus stepping out of the tomb. That Lazarus' problem was that he was dead. And you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're dead and you need to be made alive. It's as though, friends, without Christ, you are chained in your sins, you are blind in your sin, and you are laying on a table and you are dead in your sin. And there's nothing that a blind, chained, dead body can do except stink, right? Because that's what dead people do. And so in order, that, that, and, and I, wa I want you to understand this because it's not, it's not as though the world just doesn't know the truth. In some sense, it's not as though those who are unsaved don't even understand the truth. Romans chapter 1, some are actively knowing it and understanding it and seeking to suppress it. Because they're dead and their trespasses and sins and in order... For, for this person to be saved, in order for this person to, to recognize Jesus as Christ, they must first be raised to life. The chains must be broken and the eyes must be open. And at that point, they can truly accept Christ as their Savior. This means that the darkness of this world is the confusion and wickedness of this world seeking to find the truth, but walking around in blindness. It's the veil that lies over the eyes of the unbeliever so that the believer 
cannot perceive. They may know and they may understand its principles, but they cannot perceive the truth. The darkness is seen in the oppression of the weak and the abuse of the vulnerable and the twisting of God's creation all around us. That spiritually, it's not because most of them don't, I've never heard the name Jesus. And they don't need more facts. And they don't need apologetics and arguments to try to convince them. They need the Holy Spirit to breathe life into their soul. That the darkness is present. And friends, it's real. In our world, with it becoming so much smaller, with technology evolving to social media, and then, and then VR, and, and, and who knows what's coming next with AI. But as our world has become so much smaller with the communication, as, as clearly as we can so quickly all around the globe, fear sells. And so the news wants to sell you on the worst thing that's happening every day. And the darkness is so real and prevalent all around us. It's oppressive. It's twisting. It's manipulating. Good is called evil, and evil is called good. Satan is roaming the earth like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, and those who side with him are blinded in the darkness, but it gets even worse because those who are blinded and dead in the darkness love the darkness. John 3, 19 and 20, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. And so, friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you know this. And if you're here and you are a Christian, but the flesh is still present, we know this as well as our hearts are drawn to sin. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, listen carefully. You know in your heart that you love the darkness. The secrecy. Sin that feeds the flesh. But can I tell you that Jesus has come to free you from that and to bring salvation. Friends, it's very important that we recognize that this darkness that John is referring to is not just a lack of information or a lack of comprehension because it drives the way you share the gospel. It drives the way that you pray for those who are not saved. Your presentation of the gospel should not be just to give information. Well, this is what I believe. This is the truth. Your presentation of the gospel should not be to try to argue until someone is convinced. You will believe this. You will believe this. You will believe this. Your responsibility is to give the light of the gospel and pray that God would pull back the veil. To pray that God would take the light of the truth and would lighten the eyes and breathe life into the soul. How does the darkness respond in general to the light? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
word overcome it is an interesting word. It means to grasp or to hold on to. It's used the same way in English. If we were to say uh, we have a, a, a school that's attached to our ministry and we are our wonderful math teacher who's here, Mrs. Barrier's here, and, uh, and she has the immense privilege of trying to communicate math truths to high schoolers, which is so easy. I mean, come on, anybody can do that, right? And so um, if we were to go to Mrs. Barrier and we were to say, Mrs. Barrier, how are your teachers doing in calculus? How are your teachers? How are your t- students? Hopefully the teachers are doing well. How are your students doing in calculus? And she might say something like, they are grasping the concepts well. Okay, you see what she did there? She took the word grasp and she used it. She used that phrase to communicate the idea that they're holding it in their brain. They're grasping the concept. Or she might say the opposite. They're not grasping it so great, right? Or you may have come in this morning and you may have asked the question to someone else, did you shake Mr. So-and-so's hand this morning? And they would say, yes, he has a nice firm grasp. And that word grasp has nothing to do with intellectual capability. It has nothing to do with comprehension. When you talk about Mr. So-and-so with his firm grasp, you're talking about grip strength, right? I can only shake his hand once a week because I need the rest of the time to recover, right? Grasp. We use this word grasp multiple ways, and the, and the word that's used here has not overcome it, is the, is the word grasp, and it's used the same way in Greek that, that we use the word grasp in English. And so it can have multiple uh, it has one meaning to hold on. The darkness has not held on to it. But you say, what is John trying to communicate with that word grasp? And so you see it reflected in English translations this way. In the English Standard Version that I'm reading from, you'll see it reflected. The darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not laid hold of it in order to suppress it. The Christian Standard Bible does it the same way, did not overcome it. The New Living Translation will say the darkness can never extinguish it, can't grasp it to pull it down. The New American Standard, the NASB, and the King James give us a little bit of a different take on it. It says this, the darkness has not comprehended it. Like the students in the math class who may be having trouble grasping calculus. The darkness has not comprehended it. And looking at this, certainly both are true. 100% both are true. So this is not a question of which one is true, right? The gates of hell will not prevail against the light of the gospel. The darkness will not overcome the light any more than if, you're, if your room is dark and you cut on the light, the darkness doesn't go, nah, I'm good, and stay dark. It's not the way it happens. The darkness must be overcome by the light, by nature of what it is. And so if, if, if you're here and you decide to side with the darkness, you will lose. But in John's communication, I think that second option better communicates what he's trying to get at in that the darkness has not identified Jesus correctly because of their blindness. And you see that reflected on in the coming verses. And so verse 6 kind of reveals a little bit about what this looks like. This light not only shines in the darkness, but it has witnesses. Look at verse 9. 
I'm sorry, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is not John the Apostle who wrote the book. John never refers to himself by name. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. I think there's another John mentioned, maybe uh, the father or the brother of James or something like that. But um, this John is John the Baptist. There's a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. That all might believe through him, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. What does it mean that there was a man sent from God? Maybe you've had a flat tire on the side of the road, and a good Samaritan stops to help you, and you say, you have been sent from God to help me. And in that, in that sense, you would mean something very different than what John means here about John the Baptist. In Luke chapter 1, we see John the Baptist came into this world under very unique circumstances. That Elizabeth was barren, Zechariah was old in age, and an angel came to Zechariah and said, even though Elizabeth is barren, even though you are uh, old in your age, God will give you a son, and you will name him John. And listen to what the angel tells Zechariah in Luke chapter 1 and verse 15. For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine nor strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from the mother's womb. That's fascinating. The Holy Spirit indwelt John the Baptist from when he was inside the womb, from the moment of conception. Now the implications of that on the, on the abortion debate are huge, Right? And I think we all can draw a line straight from there to recognizing that life begins at conception. But there's something even more amazing going on there. And that is that God chose John the Baptist and, he, and, he, and John the Baptist was full of the spirit in the womb, which we won't go there, but this is a rabbit trail worth going down for just a second, is that the first prophecy of Jesus being Christ was made by a prophet in the womb, right? Because when Mary shows up carrying Jesus, John the Baptist in Elizabeth's tummy starts doing jumping jacks, right? And she says, whoa, the baby in me has leapt. He's prophesying. Am I the only one that thinks that you guys are looking at me like you're dead? Am I the only one that thinks that's cool? Okay, it's amazing. And so there's something different about John the Baptist that he's sent from God for a specific purpose. We need to wake up a little bit. So John the Baptist came, sent from God on a mission, the greatest prophet who ever existed. Why? Because he's the one who actually had the opportunity to take people and to point his finger at Jesus and say, the Lamb of God. That's why. Because every other prophet would say the Messiah is coming and John says he's here. He's the last Old Testament prophet to point to Jesus, to act like a, like a road sign, to act like, like someone who is just all about pointing at something else. The best illustration I could come up with was a flashlight. Flashlights are cool, man. I don't care what age you are. Like, when we get to be adults, we pretend, you know, when I'm like five and six, flashlights are the coolest thing in the world. You want to get your kids a great Christmas present? Go to the dollar store and get a dollar flashlight. The batteries are more expensive than the flashlight, right? 
And when guys get older, we pretend like we don't like flashlights, but it's not true. You take us to a hardware store, and when the wife's not looking, where do you go? You go straight for the flashlights, and you're like, oh, man, it's cool. I have flashlights. Um, I know right where they are. they got fresh batteries in them in case we lose power. But, but the phrase in verse 8 is very important. John was not the light. John was the one who was used to reveal the light. Jesus was the light. And the first, the first century church got this wrong. Do you remember Apollos in, in the book of Acts where Priscilla and Aquila come and they hear Apollos preach? And he was a man mighty gifted and eloquent in his preaching, but he only knew what? The baptism of John. And, and as, and as the, the, the gospel was going forth, the baptism of John was to baptize Jews and cleanse them from their legalism, to cleanse them from their works-based salvation, and into looking for a Messiah by faith. That was the baptism of John. And, and, and the whole first century church was to take all those people who got baptized by John and say, wait, 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 it's incomplete. It doesn't stop with John. Don't get a flashlight and don't put batteries in it because it doesn't work. John wasn't the light, but he revealed the light. He was the one who, who said, this is the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Fascinatingly, verses 6 through 8 also give us a beautiful picture of what we can learn about my, your life and my life in our ministry endeavors. That John was a witness. He came as a witness. It's a legal term of, of someone who's sitting in a courtroom and they don't have to give the final verdict. All they have to do is give a true witness to the events. And so you and I as, as believers also function as John the Baptist did in this sense, not to, to point people to a, the physical Jesus here on this earth, but to bear witness of the light. God has changed my life. My life is a witness. My actions are different, and when people say what is different, you tie it to the light. You tie it to the person of Jesus that you bear witness about the light, but you must remember that you are not the light. Your job is not to save people. Your job is not to change people. You bear no power other than the light that comes out from you. Now, there's no such thing as Fant Baptist Church, right? That the pastors in this in this congregation recognize that the ministry is about Jesus. It's bigger than any one person. Listen carefully. It's bigger than any one age group. It's different than any one demographic. It's different than any one time period. It's the same message that's been given since the day of Pentecost. Repent and turn to Jesus. We bear witness of the light. And I want to show you something amazing. Look at verse 7. This is incredible. John bore witness about the light. Remember verse 8, he's not the light. His job is to bear witness about the light. But what is true about him? That all might believe through him. 
And when I first read this verse, I thought that him was talking about Jesus, but it's not. It's talking about John. It means that John was faithful and God used John's preaching to save people. Salvation doesn't happen in a vacuum, friends. People, you will not save people, but people may come to Christ through you, through your testimony, through your light, through your words. God saves, right? But when you are faithful, when you give the gospel, when you live a life and then tie those actions to the person of Jesus and somebody comes to Christ, they are saved through your ministry. That you are needed. God saves people through John the Baptist's ministry. But John had to stand up and declare the truth. Friends, it's a call to be faithful. That you have no power to save, but you have a responsibility to share. You have a responsibility to speak. And that through your words, through your ministry, people can be saved. It's, it's referenced in Scripture in 1 Corinthians 1.21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. Foolishness of preaching. The foolishness of sharing the gospel. You say, it's so simple. Yeah, you're right. In the world's eyes, it's foolishness to look at somebody and say, friend, Jesus is the answer you've been looking for. But it's through the foolishness of that that God chooses to save. Through John. So amazingly comforting that God could use you. You say, Pastor Joe, I've never led someone to Christ, but I'd like to. Can I give you a, a, a task, right? A, I'll give you homework. We've talked about school. We'll have homework, right? Why don't you just start praying every day, Lord, would you allow me to lead someone to Christ? Remember, you don't save people. But would you allow me to lead someone to Christ? Would you allow through my witness of the gospel that someone would be saved? Pray that and watch God answer that prayer. But it's not going to happen if we sit on the couch and don't open our mouths, right? It happens as we faithfully spread the message that salvation is found in Jesus alone. With that in mind, I want to draw this to a close by recognizing that the light uses messengers to accomplish its mission, but this light will not be accepted by all. It will not be accepted by all. Look at verse 9. The true light, in contrast to all the other false lights that people try to find satisfaction and salvation in, the true light, which gives light to everyone, that's everyone who believes, Reference down in verse 12. Was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. The world did not know him. First of all, Jesus is the true light. That gives light to all who come in faith. 
But I want you to look down at verse 10. This is interesting. Beginning at the end of verse 9 and in verse 10, we see the word world mentioned four times. John uses this word world often in his book, but he means some scholars would say even up to 10 different things by the word world. And we do the same thing. In context, we know what we mean. This is the best meal in the whole world. Okay, it's probably, you know, and if you've got a smart aleck in your family, they'll say, really, literally, in the whole world? You know, you are the nicest person in the world. Literally? Well, no. I mean, I'm sure there's someone nicer than you. But you know what I mean. You know, um, you know we, we talk about the world, and we mean people in the world. The world, right? The ominous, don't be like the world. And then everybody defines what they mean by that on their own, right? How about this? For God so loved the world. And yet in 1 John, love not the world, neither the things in the world. For if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. But Jesus loved the world. Yeah, the, we mean different things. Do you see how the context can determine what's happening here? And I want to show you how actually in, this, in these two verses, John gives us a clue that he's actually using the world two different ways. Okay, so look down with me at verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now, what kind of world is John referring to? We know what he's not referring to. Is he referring to the sinfulness of mankind? Did Jesus come in sin? No. Is he talking about the perverse mindset and worldview that all the unsaved people have? No, Jesus definitely didn't possess that. He's talking about creation. The Word, look at verse 14, the Word became... Remember, we had, a, we had a statement of being. The word was God, and now we have a statement of becoming. The word became flesh. He's talking about creation. Jesus, the created true man, as the God the Son, enters into his creation. And we'll talk about that in the coming weeks. But that's what that's referring to in, in verse 9. Coming into the world, Jesus, God the Son, entering into creation, he was in the world. He was in creation. And the world was made through him. Once again, in case you missed it, Jesus created everything that exists. Yet the world did not know him. Is that talking about trees? And rocks? No, they know God exists. In fact, Scripture says that if we don't give praise to God, even the rocks will cry out, right? Balaam's donkey knew who God was. And God opened up his mouth, and that donkey looked right at Balaam and spoke to him. It's not as though the created order doesn't know that there's a God. It's that those who are in darkness, who are blinded by sin, do not know Jesus. And so as we go through the Gospel of John, and when you read the word 
world, you need to ask yourself the question, how is John using this word? And it's, it's not difficult. Like if you see and you just read it and you, and you think a little bit, you can determine it's not difficult. He tells you in the context around it which one he means. What he's saying is Jesus entered in, or God the Son entered his, into creation as Jesus, the hypostatic union of God and man. And when he did that, those blinded by the darkness rejected him. How do we know that this, this darkness is not a darkness of lack of information or lack of understanding the information? Because the last verse we're going to look at this morning, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Those who knew the Old Testament the best, the Pharisees and the scribes, they missed it. They knew the truth. They suppressed the truth. So much so that, as we see in the Gospels, the Pharisees would say things like, if we don't get rid of this man, the whole world will believe in him. It's why they killed Jesus. Because they knew that he claimed to be God. Some knew that he was the Son of God. But in their unrighteousness, Romans 1 tells us, they suppressed truth. So it helps us to understand the nature of the darkness. So we understand the nature of our responsibility in giving the light. Two concluding thoughts for us this morning as we close. Number one, pray that the light will pierce the darkness. You know what happens when you're in a cave and that darkness is enveloping you? And you're in total darkness? You know what happens when there's one pinprick of light? It shines. And then as that light grows and your eyes adjust and as the light comes on, the darkness has no choice but to flee. Because the definition of darkness is the absence of light. And so the definition of the unsaved is the absence of God. And friends, when the light of the gospel shines in someone's heart, the darkness has no choice but to flee. And so we pray that the light will pierce the darkness. Recognize that it is only the light and the life that comes from God that can give life to a dead soul, that can give light to the blinded eyes, that can break the chains of sin. And so we pray and we beg God, God, will you save those who would believe? God, would you save souls? Lord, would you let me see it? Would you let me see it? There's great revivals happening. I don't know if you knew this or not, but in China, in the Philippines, and in the Middle East now, friends, there are great, there are, there are Muslims being saved by the thousands. You don't hear about it because the darkness suppresses the truth. But I even read an article this week about missionaries in the Middle East who have websites that are devoted to people who say, I I'm looking for the truth and I'm being drawn to the truth and I need to know what it is. 
as people are being saved by the thousands. And so, friends, it's not as though the gospel doesn't work. Let's pray that we can see it here. If you think people aren't being saved anymore, it's because you're not witnessing. As we've seen families come to Christ, be baptized and added to our church, but we, we need to see more. So be the flashlight that turns on the light and shines in the darkness and pray, God, will you save souls? God, will you save souls? Secondly, our responsibility is simply just to be the vessel through which the gospel can shine. Live a life of holiness and sanctification and put a name to it. Share the truth of the gospel with your words. Recognize that the message of the gospel is very simple. If you're not saved, you have a problem. And your problem is called sin. God is the answer And that answer is called forgiveness from sin. And the way that you lay hold of forgiveness is not by anything that you've done, not by works of righteousness, which we've done. The way that you lay hold of forgiveness and cleansing is to lay hold of Jesus by faith. It's to believe, to cross the bridge of faith, to get to the cross, and there lay hold of Christ. And as you share that truth, many will turn away, but some will believe. And may we be that witness through which God shines. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truth of Scripture and the encouragement that it is for us, the conviction. We pray that if there's one here who is not saved, that you would take the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, Father, that they would believe that they would lay hold of you by faith alone. That they would turn from their sin and turn to you. For the Christians that are here, may we accurately represent Jesus as the light of the world. May we be the vessel through which that light shines. And Father, may we see souls saved as a result of the witnesses that our community baptism.